The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 31 of the Ascent of Board Games. I'm Brian. I have Frank and Mike slash Kodab and Joe and Jason with me, which means we've all survived this far, although this is still the end of 2020 as we record this, so we may all be dead by the time you hear this. We are here today to talk about a topic that was suggested by a listener just like you, or if you're G-dipped, possibly by you. Mike, this one came through your Twitch channel, I believe, so tell us about it. Yeah, so GJIP's been listening and catching up, and I think has caught up with all of our episodes, and was uh, teaching me how to play Marvel Crisis Protocol, which uh, we'll talk about a little bit later, but really enjoyed it, and was like, y'all should do an episode on tie-in games. And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. So thank you, GJIP, for the suggestion. So it's worth mentioning that we're going to talk about something that is rather unusual in board games, which is the original media is good and also the tie-in game is good. So we're not going to talk about games where the tie-in game is bad. Now, bad being relative, bad being our opinion, obviously. Right, I was going to say, obviously, we are not saying that your favorite (laughs) game is bad. And you are wrong and bad for liking it. I'm happy to say that it's fine. (laughs) Oh, so I can't talk about the Electro Woman and Dino Girl game? I mean, is it a good game? No. Then no. <laughs> is it a so bad it's good game? <laughs> that we might allow it. No. Okay. <laughs> no, games that are games that are just bad, we're not going to talk. But about. but but it is about Electro Woman and Dino Girl. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> I would like to point out that none of us can physically stop you from talking about it. <laughs> oh right. I can, however, turn off the recording. <laughs> Uh, Brian does have authorial controls. Brian so, has you the know. big edit button. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So we are, yes, going to be talking about good tie-in games, which are rare. Some of the limitations we set on ourselves to try and keep this a little bit rational, as rational as we ever get. We are not going to be talking about the 800 versions of Monopoly or Clue or Risk or any of the old standards that happen to have been rethemed for a particular intellectual property. We're also, for the most part, not going to be talking about IPs that are in the public domain, so we're leaving out Sherlock Holmes, we're leaving out H.P. Lovecraft, because those could both be episodes unto themselves. So basically, we're talking about relatively modern intellectual properties that are reasonably popular and have good games associated with them. Did anyone play a first board game that was like a licensed game? Because the first board game my parents bought for me was Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> ah, no. I can't yeah. think of one. Growing up, it had to have been like one of the crappy Monopoly tie-ins or whatever, which oh, was no. just Got it. Monopoly, but with Star Wars on it. No, no, I had like a, even older than that, I had like a the Cooties game or something like oh, that, God, where it's like yeah. designed Cooties. for children. Oh, yeah. Classic. So I never, I've never really told anyone this before, but my brother and I, when we were kids, right, we had the Star Wars Monopoly game, and we decided that it needed more game to it, <laughs> and so we gave each of the pawns a power. Oh my god! Based on their like faction. 
All right, so, like, the Emperor, like, when you gave money to the Emperor, you couldn't make change during that process because he was the Emperor and he owned all the banks, right? And that was the, that's the only one I remember because oh my it gosh. just stuck wow. in my head. That is that's awesome. pretty awesome. That's oh, yeah, totally. starting Joe's long tradition of game customization. Yep. Today, he's sort of refined the process a little bit. He mostly leaves rules out rather than putting <laughs> rules into the game. Tell me my version of Viva Java isn't better, and I'll take it back. Which one, Joe? We've had, like, six versions of Viva Java. No, no, Brian. We've been carefully playtesting and critiquing Joe's version of Viva Java. We're curating the the perfect rule set. Right. I have copious notes. I appreciate all of Joe's variants that he posts on BoardGameGeek, where she's like, take out page 12 and 17 of the rulebook. Just see what happens. I mean, like, you know, we'll just play by ear. Might be cool. Who knows? I should also mention as we kick off here that normally when we do these games, we do them more or less in chronological order by the time the game was released. Just to keep things interesting, we're doing it chronologically in the order of when the original media, book, movie, play, whatever came out. So we're going to jump around in the board game chronology a little bit, but hopefully you'll forgive us. I don't know if I can handle this change. Resort the spreadsheet, Mike. It's going to be fine. We're also not including today board games that are spinoffs from other type of games. So we're not doing spinoffs of computer games or miniature games. You know, you're not going to talk about any of the Warhammer 40K board games or the upcoming Darkest Dungeon board game or things like that. So this is just from TV, movie, books kind of thing. Honestly, Warhammer would be a whole episode by its damn self. Uh, Yes, and probably needs to be at some point. Ooh, pretty. I'd do that episode. Well, good, because you're, you're part of the podcast. Excellent. You're in. I'm we haven't fired you yet. actually obligated until we do a Warhammer 40k. <laughs> Excellent. So this is Horrified, which basically exists off the Universal Monsters license that it's properly Universal Monsters licensed. This means you get Dracula, Werewolf, the Mummy. Creature from the Black Lagoon, is he in there? Frankenstein. Yeah, he's in there. Creature of the Black Lagoon, yep. So you get all the classics and our cat's names. <laughs> At least the actors who played them. Horrified's by Prospera Hall and published by, I think it's Ravensburger. Mm-hmm. The important name is Prospera Hall. You'll see that name coming up occasionally. They're a design team called, I think, Forest Prusan Creative in Seattle. They actually do good games. So generally, if you see that name on there, it's at least a game. It's pretty different. They're aware of games. In this case, the base for Horrified, you pick two to four, four if you're masochistic of the universal monsters each monster has a setup for how they're going to terrorize you and you have to take them out each of those takeouts is like a mini game so creature from the black lagoon you have to basically pay cards to navigate a swamp and get the boat to the creature where you can fight and defeat them the creature and the bride frankenstein basically have to move across the board toward each other if they meet they become an indomitable pair and terrorize and destroy the world and to do this you have cards and villagers so one thing you have are innocents you have to basically shepherd and escort so the game is in fact a big escort mission away from the monsters because you lose points and things get more difficult if they get eaten by the monsters yeah all the npcs are people from those movies right so <laughs> one is Cello, right yeah one is igor right so they're all very evocative npcs as well like it's this game just fires on all cylinders oh, really. no, the theme's great and basically you get a number of points and you spend points to basically move people You're basically collecting tokens that represent different colors of power. 
and you use those to fight the monsters. If the monster hits you, it generally causes you to remove tokens from the game, which can make winning impossible at some point. The theming set aside, this game oh, it's it great. felt a lot like playing Pandemic, yeah. which is not a bad thing at all. I would say that this is a game for people who like Pandemic but are looking for something different. I think this is a good next step. Yeah, you've got to decide. You've got like four actions. You've got to decide whether to pick up new tokens, actually try to go and use your tokens or shepherd some people out of the way. And so there's always, you know, which crisis is worse. So it definitely has that pandemic feel. I'm sad that I have not played anything other than the intro game, which felt very... It was on the easy side, yeah. Yeah, because I think it was only two monsters, and they were both relatively straightforward, so it wasn't super exciting. Yeah, yeah, Dracula's the least interesting. You just have to take out his coffins. Yep. I do like this game, though, because it is very, very approachable. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, this is the kind of game that I'm always on the lookout for games that, like, I could bring home and, like, show to my parents or whatnot, right? And, like, this is exactly that kind of game. I could recommend this to anyone without any compunction. Yeah, you slap down the board, pretty much say, you can do this, 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 these are your actions, just go. So with new folks, maybe something to do before you go to Pandemic. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. I didn't think about this before, but one thing we may want to talk about with these games is how does it compare to the original media? Because, like, while I enjoy Horrified and I think it is a good game, does it really evoke the original theming of those movies? I mean, I'd say so. I feel like the monster powers do a very good job of that, right? So each monster has a specific power, like the creature of the Black Lagoon can travel through the river spaces. Dracula, he has like a dark command ability, right? Like I feel like each of the monster's powers does do a pretty decent job. It's not a lot, I will admit, but like it is definitely noticeable in the gameplay. And the way you have to defeat the monsters themselves, right? Because if I remember correctly, the creature, you're trying to actually track it back through the, the underwater caves to where it lives, right? Which is yeah, correct. straight Which, from the movie. Yeah, I'm not sure about the other monsters. I haven't played all of them. I think it's certainly as close to the plot line as someone almost 100 years after those movies started <laughs> coming out is going to remember. I mean, it hits all the broad strokes that we recognize those monsters from. Yeah, none of it was felt very jarring, right? When you're playing it, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense why he does that or why we have to defeat him this way. The other thing I'll say is that as with pretty much everything Prospero Hall does graphically, it's oh, yeah. really oh, well yeah. done. Their stuff tends to be really spot on in terms of nailing the theme and stuff they're going for, and this is no exception. It's funny because like, a lot of times when you hear about a company that specializes in doing intellectual property games, usually they're just pretty soulless cash grabs, broadly speaking. The list that we came up with is actually, I'd say, the exception to the rule rather than the vast majority of these types of games. But Prospero Hall, whenever they release something, I'm at least going to look at it. They have such interesting things. In this case of this game, it's so approachable. I mean, they sell it at Target. <laughs> it's crazy to see a game like this in Target, but that's kind of the market that they can hit because their games are so easy to teach people. Yeah, I've got another game that's a cute trick-taking game called Monster Crunch, which is based on Frankenberry, Booberry, and Count Chocula. Say, it sounds like a serial <laughs> game. <laughs> yes. Why aren't we talking about that in this episode? Oh, you're right. <laughs> I know what our Halloween episode next year is going to be. <laughs> Talk about some obscure tie-ins. I will say, though, on that same comment, Brian, that I think something that goes a long way in making this feel and look like the aesthetic of those original movies is just their art choice in this game. The front cover of the box is really reminiscent of the old movie posters. Oh, yeah, they're like the lobby cards. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, whoever their art designer is over there, they're doing a really good job. For sure. Much like um, Who Makes Unmatched, their art design is exceptional. Unmatched is Restoration. Yeah, Restoration, yeah. Exceptional. Just really, really sharp-looking designs. For oh, sure. Totally. So, Jason, I have a question <laughs> yes, for Brian? you. Yes, <laughs> Brian? What is best in life? Oh, God. You know I should have this line memorized. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's fine. Just go who ahead. are you and what have you done with Jason? So we're talking about Conan here, people. I know it's like crush your enemies beneath you. Hear the lamentations of their women, something like that. As long as you get lamentations of their women in there, it's, it's good. to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of their women. Thank you, Joe. I'm with Jason on this one. Blah blah lamentations. Blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> so back in 2016, there was a Kickstarter, big surprise, of a miniatures heavy board game for Conan. These guys at Monolith took it so seriously, they actually hired a quote-unquote Conan expert that basically helped vet that everything they were doing kind of lined up with Robert E. Howard's original stories. This might have been Jeff who actually pointed me in the direction of this Kickstarter, so it's all his fault. Friend of the show, Jeff. Um, I'm sure he just saw minis and just said, oh, Jason will like this. The idea here is this is a one-versus-many game. One person takes on the role of the overlord, so you're basically the person behind all the, the bad stuff happening, and then the other players are playing as the heroes. So that could be any character that has even had the barest and briefest of mentions in <laughs> Conan's story. So, of course, Conan himself, and it's kind of cool, they have different variations of Conan. You've got regular old Conan, you've got Conan the general, you've got Conan the king, you've got Conan the pirate... Amra the Lion, like just every possible thing they could squeeze out of these stories they've stuck <laughs> into this game. But do they have Conan the Barbarian? Uh, hmm, I think that's his regular version. I don't think he's I called think they out call as him the, the Barbarian. Thief. Because he was kind of a rogue almost in the early ones. Yeah, it, it's he could still kill like a thousand men. Is Red Sonya in there, or is she uh, so, safe so for expansion? They didn't have the IP for that, but there ah. is um, there is a character you can purchase called Venier Valkyrie that is quite clearly Red Sonya. <laughs> okay, fair enough. They snuck her in there the best way they could. Each of the heroes that you play as have their own set of unique skills. They have their own abilities they're good or bad at, right? So naturally, Conan is really, really good at fighting. Shavatas, the Thief King, is really, really good at manipulation, which is what you use for picking locks and evasion and getting around things. The thing that really drew me mechanically is that both the human players and the Overlord have these activation gems. They have a certain number of gems based on the character you're playing as. The Overlord gets a certain number of gems based off of the scenario you're playing. And you spend these gems to activate, right? So the players will use them to put a gem into their fight action block, and that'll allow them to make an attack. They'll put them into their manipulate block, and that'll allow them to try and pick a lock or put it into their movement so they can move into a different space. And these gems represent both your ability to take actions as well as your health. So on your turn, if you spend a lot of gems, you know, attacking enemies and moving around and you have no gems left in reserve, when it becomes the Overlord's turn, they get to attack you, right, spending their own gems to activate their minions and their boss creatures. You don't have any gems left to defend, so you're just going to just take a whole bunch of damage, which will take those gems from your pool and put them into something where you can't recover them. So there's a constant balance of how much do I want to spend on this turn attacking things and moving around, and how much do I want to hold back, because there's a entire tribe of picks coming my way that are going to just wreck my face if I don't defend against it. It's an interesting push and pull, and it's even kind of enhanced by the fact that the players have to make a decision at the beginning of their turn. Is this going to be an aggressive turn where I can do any action I want and spend a lot of gems, but I get 
less gems back as a, at the start of my turn? Or am I going to do a cautious turn where all I can do is defend, but I get a lot more of that reserve energy back into my active pool? So there's a really fun push and pull there that I really enjoy. Yeah, no, sounds interesting. Yeah, I don't know if the players enjoy it so much because every time <laughs> I teach this game to people, I warn them about this. And of course, if you're playing Conan, you want to go wreck face, right? You're like, hey, I am Conan. I'm going to run up with my giant battle axe and cleave these guys in twain. Great. You've spent all your gems. I just walk up with a wolf and chew your face off. Now Conan <laughs> is really tired. <laughs> yes. It is a one verse mini game that is also kind of asymmetrical, but not mechanically asymmetrical. I mean, like you said, if the hero players go all out, they're going to get wrecked, which is not necessarily true for the evil player. And I can't decide which one is harder to play, because I can see if you were a first-time player playing the Keeper, you make similar mistakes oh sure that just you're like how is this even possible yeah so so let's talk about the overlords because i haven't really talked about what their deal is because you you bring up a really good point they do have the same kind of abilities but the way that they activate is slightly different so as as their overlord you have a what they call the book of skelos because of course have to make a conan reference and it's basically a series of tiles of all the minions that you have control over right and each one has a activation cost associated with it tiles on the far left cost less than tiles on the far right so if I activate the first tile in, in order, it's going to cost, let's say, two activation gems. I activate them, those enemies move and they attack, do whatever. That tile gets moved to the back of the pile and all the other ones slide up. So if I want to activate that same enemy again, I have to spend a lot more gems. Whereas now the one that was second in line is first in line now and they cost less. So it kind of has a built-in way of balancing where each of your enemies are likely going to be activated before you activate the same one again. But you do have that flexibility to say, ooh. Yeah, I already activated my giant snake, and it's going to cost me five activation gems to activate it again, but I really want to kill Conan this turn, so I'm going to spend all of my gems. I don't know which one's harder, Mike. I will say, um, and this is kind of classic monolith uh, game design, I wouldn't say most of the scenarios are balanced. There are some that are. There are some that are really lopsided. <laughs> like, there's there's one with uh, Bellet on the boats, where it's just like, how does the Overlord win? It just doesn't seem possible. <laughs> But if you go into it with that expectation, I think there's a lot of fun to be had. There's definitely a lot of like great moments. It's going to come down to one roll. Wasn't there one where you and I played where you literally hit yourself with a lightning bolt to kill all my guys? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was the best option I had at the time. I could see this being a game that if I was still in high school, we just go oh, yeah. deep into it, and it gets better the more you play it. Sadly... <laughs> I am an adult now and do not have that infinite amounts of free time, mostly because it's spent playing Arkham Horror. <laughs> but yeah, this is definitely one of those meaty games that the more you play it, the more you are going to pick up on that strategy and the richer the experience will be. Oh yeah, completely agree. And like, it's one of those games that like, in terms of regrets of not playing more of, this is right at the top and it's not because I have hundreds of minis from it. The nice thing is like, because it's Monolith, of course, they, uh, the first rulebook wasn't great. I I'd argue it's one of their better ones. They released a new rule book, which I just read through last night. Much better, much more clear. Actually, I was really impressed with it for a change. Since the original release, they've released standalone solo scenarios. They've released full co-op. So now they have an automated way of getting the Overlord to trigger. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, which was huge because like, sometimes you just don't want to have a one versus many game because someone's going to be unhappy. They've released full-blown campaigns, two of them, I think, at this point. They have their own um, website called theoverlord.net that is all fan-made scenarios and fan-made campaigns. Like, 
I'm shocked at for a game that's this quote unquote old, the support on it is remarkable. Like they keep coming out with brand new scenarios, they keep adding more content for free, the fans keep building their own stuff. The whole episode here that we're talking about is all based off of theme. I only knew Conan from the movie that I couldn't remember the quote from. I read this Kickstarter campaign. I got way into it. I bought all the Conan books. I read all the Conan books. If there's a scrap of a partial story that Robert E. Howard wrote, I've read it based on Conan. I went deep into this because it really just, I don't know. Apparently, I love 1930s pulp fiction more than I ever knew. But this game, like, it really evokes the feel of those books. If you've read any of the Conan books, a lot of these characters that are in this game, yeah, you meet them and they die immediately which happens a lot in this game. (laughs) (laughs) So it's accurate as well. It's thematically appropriate. It's very accurate. They've since launched another Kickstarter campaign where they're adding more expansions, more boards, more figures. Like, this is probably their most well-supported game (laughs) out of all the things they've come out with. I can't recommend it enough. The same system was re-implemented in the Batman Gotham game that was also in Kickstarter. Not as good, from what I understand. I have not bought it, because, again, I don't need 400 more miniatures for a game I'm not super interested in. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) You don't need 400 more miniatures. In a game I'm not interested in. I definitely Mm. need 400 more miniatures, but (laughs) I don't know. For some reason, that game, like, I didn't like the sculpts, and the system seemed kind of finicky. Like, it's weird. Like, it's the same system, but somehow they explained it worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah from the feedback I've read about it, because I've, you know, every once in a while I'll check in, I'm like, oh, maybe they fixed it finally. Apparently it's just keyword hell. Like, they don't explain what any of the keywords are except in the manual, and every character has, like, ten different skills, so it's just a nightmare. I don't know. It was one that people seem not very happy with for whatever reason, and apparently I'm more into Conan than I am Batman, but if Batman's more your thing, it's the same system. Might be a little more difficult to get into based on what I've read about the rule book, but definitely one of my favorite games. I just need to spend more time playing it. That sounds familiar. Well, so after having read all of the Conan stuff, does this game really evoke the writings of Conan? Yeah, I'd say it does. Like, um, each scenario has like a little blurb about uh, what you're doing in this mission. Some of them are replicating stories that Howard wrote. Some of them are extensions of it, like, hey, we're revisiting this thing that was in one of these Conan books. Like, to be fair, the Conan stories were, for the most part, were just short stories published in magazines, so they're not super lengthy or super complex. So there's a lot of space where you can make new stuff that kind of fits in with the right pastiche without changing anything. I'd say they really do feel right. The only thing that they cheat on is that you have characters that use magic, where if you've read any of the Conan stories, magic is a very nebulous and almost always an evil, evil, evil thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have Hadrathus running around firing lightning bolts at people, where in the book it's like, he summoned flame to his hand, and everyone's like, oh my god! He's a sorcerer, <laughs> yeah. kill him! They definitely go a little more, hey, we need a magic user, let's just fake this. <laughs> It certainly got me into something I wasn't all that experienced with. It it was funny, like, reading through the books, my perception of Conan came from the movies, of course, and came from, if anyone remembers, the god-awful cartoon show where he was tracking down star metal to fight the lizard men, or the snake men. Wait, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a Conan cartoon where he's not killing anyone is just weird. Oh, never mind. But, like, you know, I always thought he was this unthinking brute And in the books, it's funny, the first Conan story, he's already king, right? It's way far advanced, like, beyond where he was, you know, a barbarian. He's already ruling over Aquilonia. And you're like, what? (laughs) What is this nonsense? I didn't even know he had a kingdom. So 
he's more of a thinking character than people give him credit for. Like it's mm-hmm. it's less Conan Smash. It's more like he's not civilized, right? He he doesn't understand the nuance. He's of civilization. not cultured, but he's definitely not dumb. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's very cunning. He doesn't have manners, but he's cunning. He's not stupid, and like. A lot of the stories, like uh, Frank mentioned, like he he's a thief in a lot of them. He's a pirate king in a couple of them. He's an actual king in some of them. And some of them, he's just a guy fighting in a mercenary army. Look, Conan is just trying to get by in this gig economy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> he's got a lot of plates to spin, guys. Come on. <laughs> it is funny, too, because like, uh, you know, everyone's perception of what he looks like is all built off of uh off of mostly the comic books arnold schwarzenegger well no most of the comic books right so like schwarzenegger is based off the comics or his design right where it's like yeah frank frazetta also oh yeah 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 um, you know guy in loincloth with horned helmet giant sword or giant axe like that's conan where as you read the books like he's wearing chain mail or full-on plate mail in <laughs> some of these stories like weird this is not what i was expecting <laughs> yeah conan in a lot of the stories is is somewhat more of a ranger than a barbarian to, mm-hmm. to go D nerdy for a bit yeah it's funny if you look at any of the original cover art for the magazines that his stories are in it's super 1930s totally hairless guy with no defined muscle <laughs> you're like what is going on here Fair warning, if anyone wants to read the books, very, very dated views on women, very, very dated views on anything that's not white. Yeah. There's some difficult passages to get through. You're like, oh, oh boy. Yeah, this was the 30s, all right. He was good, good friends with H.P. Lovecraft, so that should tell you a lot. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of those warnings coming up soon, so... I guess we should go ahead and put a warning on here that we are in no way endorsing any of the authors of these IPs, and uh, sometimes they are despicable people. Yes. Mm -hmm. We'll circle back to that more recently than I'd like. We've already spent 20 minutes talking about Conan, and we have a lot to get through. (laughs) I'm going to move on. I know you love it, Jason, and the passion is good. Next IP we're talking about is one that came out in 1937, a little thing called The Hobbit, which led to The Lord of the Rings, which led to three awesome movies and then some other movies. You left out The Silmarillion. Was that on purpose? I mean, (laughs) I've tried to read The Silmarillion a few times. The first book of The Silmarillion is functionally like one of the early books of the Bible where there's like all the begettings and histories and generations. And I don't know, I just could not make it through. I think I'm just going to skip that part the next time I give it a shot. The Lord of the Rings is one of those rare properties that actually has consistently produced good tie-in games. I mean, I'm sure there were some crappy ones along the way. I'm certain there was a Lord of the Rings Monopoly somewhere and that sort of thing. But the first one I ever owned and played was War of the Ring, which is not the recent big box War of the Ring, which is an excellent game. But this is one from 1977 with art from the original animated cartoon And, you know, it was basically a big Avalon Hill counters on a map style war game that I spent way too much time playing solitaire because, as mentioned before, I had no friends. But ever since the release of the Hobbit game, Past Brian is an idiot and means the Lord of the Rings game, the Reiner Knizia co-op game of the Hobbit Lord of the Rings, there has really been a long series of good Lord of the Rings Middle Earth tie-in games. The Hobbit itself, Lord of the Rings, was one of the early co-ops that really established a lot of the standards and still kind of holds up. Confrontation was an interesting sort of twist on Stratego with a lot of individual character powers. And The War of the Ring, if you want a big, long, combat-heavy dice chucker for two players, that's a hell of a game. 
Yeah, it's a great game, and yeah, I did spend my 400 bucks on it. You got the Super <laughs> Deluxe Elite Edition? Yeah. Does it come with a true ring? The one ring? Oh, yeah, there's a one ring in there. <laughs> I mean, have you seen the Deluxe Edition of this? I haven't. I probably would have bought it if I did. It's, <laughs> oh, it's really kind of extraordinary. It is the greatest packaging for a game ever. I can't remember if it was last Christmas or two years ago, but my brother got that for me for Christmas. Not the deluxe edition, but the newest printing. And he's like, I've heard great things about this game. We should play it. And I'm like, oh, there goes the next eight hours of my life. You were not ready. (laughs) I was not ready, but we did it. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was not ready. Oh, no, he is still early enough in his gaming career that just like any new game that has big sweeping things like that is going to be exciting. It's very refreshing to watch. One of the things that the War of the Ring game does really, really well, you basically roll a themed dice pool for each side at the start of each turn. Then you just take turns picking out of your dice to do an action. So the actual turns back and forth is really fast. And you're having to react to every little die pick of the other player. So the game just feels like it flies in a lot of ways, even though it's, you know, it is a big long game, but it does does move at a pretty good clip. I would argue the exact opposite, just because, like, the way that that game is set up, if you're playing the evil player and you fail at an assault and you need reinforcements, they are effectively a million miles away and will take hours to get to where you need them. You give up on that and do something I mean, else. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot like, of options. It is a mechanically fast game, but it is slow-paced at times. Yeah. But yeah, you know, great map. It's one of those things that I know Jason is going to think this is heretical. I think in a lot of cases, not all those miniatures need to be miniatures. Because if you're moving 15 horsemen and a couple elephants in a stack to try and go to a location there, it gets kind of cramped and crowded. So there is something to be said for the old Havilon Hill stacks of cardboard counters. Mm -hmm. Uh, That may just be nostalgia talking to me. Well, not to mention there is pertinent information printed on the spaces of the board that if you've got Mm -hmm. all of your miniatures on top of, makes it impossible to read. But... I guess at the same time, they could not have made the board any larger. It just wouldn't have been practical. Unless it came with legs and was its own table. (laughs) They did. Actually, the deluxe edition has a board that's 150 time or 150x or 150%. Percent. Yeah, if it was 150 times, it would be the size of Rhode Island. Right, so it's it's life-size? Actual Middle Earth, yeah. Yes, you get actual elephants running the Mumakai. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I'm looking at this thing now. Good lord. Oh, isn't it great? That is a table hog. Yes, it is. It's one of those games that I love conceptually. I enjoy the game. I own the game. But getting even just two players together for a multi-hour extravaganza like that doesn't happen very often. So I almost never play it, but I would like to, which is, of course, a familiar refrain here. It's really the theme of our podcast, isn't right, it? It's the theme of our lives. <laughs> Boy, sure would like to play some of these games. I think we can just chalk that one up to 2020, though. I mean, we a lot of it, yeah. We have played all of these and more if it weren't for the fact that um, we're all in quarantine. Yeah. Uh, no, we be real. <laughs> so talking about other games in the Lord of Rings universe in general... Specifically, the Lord of the Rings game that was uh, the 2000 game by Fantasy Flight. I have extremely fond memories of that game. I think it's, personally, I think it's the first co-op I ever played. 
And so, like, the first experience of the co-op is always kind of special because this is the first time you're working together with your friends instead of trying to beat them up. And I have extremely fond memories of that game. Yeah, I also want to give the Hobbit game Lord of the Rings. Joe just said it. A shout out because it is one of the only licensed Hobbit Lord of the Rings properties that remembers Fatty Bulger and gives him his due. <laughs> he was the unsung hero. The fifth Hobbit. Oh, man. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, that was like the the fact that you've got the corruption track. Oh wait, this is this isn't the Hobbit. This is Lord of the Rings. Thank you, Frank. Oh, sorry. But it does have all five Hobbits. It does have Fetty Bulger in it. So like, I thought you were just on the right track. So it is Lord of the Rings. Why was I calling it the Hobbit? Because you're an idiot. You know, Frodo, Mount Doom. Yeah, Mount yeah, yeah, Doom's yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. That is that is definitely a thing. I just I just called it by the wrong name. Yeah, because that's the one with the little minimalist Sauron monolith. Yes. That yeah. sort of starts crawling towards you on the corruption <laughs> track, which is great. So wait a minute, is that the one that just has like the long rectangular boards with the circles that you move from place to place yes, on it? Yes, exactly. and you have the <laughs> shields and feet and whatever the the third thing that is. That was the a good little game. Icons that you. It is so a good, good game. Why has that not been remade? Just the reason co-op games exist now is the success popularity and how good that game was mm-hmm. yeah because it's generally just a good game like it has all the moments that you want out of like a co-op but it's really approachable right the game isn't super complicated but it still has those moments where like well if we do this this bad thing is gonna happen if we do this this other bad thing is gonna happen which one's less bad and like that's oh yeah that's classic co-op yeah it's still hard too <laughs> Lots of good stuff in this series. And then starting in the same year, as far as the IP goes, is a much more recent game that was, I don't say it's one of my all-time favorites, but I think it's better than a lot of people expected it to be, is Villainous, which was a 2018 release. Was that also a Prospero Hall? Yep, Prospero Hall, published by Ravensburger. Basically, this is a game where everybody is playing one of the classic Disney villains. You know, you've got... Maleficent and the Red Queen. And of course, there are expansions that have more. And you're each trying to sort of finish your evil plan before any of the other villains do. So basically, you have uh, your own little player board where you move around and take different actions. You're playing cards from your hand. You redraw. It's a pretty simple game, easy to teach, good for families, especially because everybody knows these Disney films. Everybody has a slightly different way they need to achieve their goal. The Red Queen, I think, needs to get a series of croquet wickets in play and then hit a strike when there are enough of them out there. I'm not going to say it's balanced. It's very kind of random. If you get the right cards, you need in the right order. But it's a fun game, again, with Prospero Hall. Great graphic design on it. Very approachable, very familiar. It does theme very well. Each of the villains kind of feels like the way they are depicted in the movies. It's a good family game, certainly. Didn't they re-implement this into a Marvel theme, too? Yep. I haven't seen it, but yeah. It could work with really any IP. Sure. That lets you play a villain and mm. has heroes that come against you. Because one of the mechanics in the game is you get to slow someone down by basically having them draw from their hero deck and torturing them with the hero card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody has their own deck of bad things that your opponents can throw at you. Once again, I feel like this is a missed opportunity to make a Kingdom Hearts game. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. I was confused for a minute. I know there have been expansions to this. I couldn't find any of them on Board Game Geek, but they're not listed under expansions for the game. Oh, yeah. There's been a lot of expansions. They are standalone because all you need is the uh, villain stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got Corella Deville and. Yeah. <laughs> Considering who some of the other villains are, it seems like she'd be hopelessly outmatched. <laughs> she just wants a coat. That's all she wants. 
her standard for victory is way smaller than all of the other villains. <laughs> yeah, it's a lower bar. Hades, you know, has slightly different level of goals going on. And I demand to know where Chernobog is. Yeah, he doesn't really have a plot in the film. He's, not He's technically just like a villain. Some demons. Just... I mean, he is literally a demon. <laughs> sure, but like that's just speciesist at that point. I mean, sure, it's true. He yeah. is. He is unfortunately typecast that He's way. He's just a nice guy. I mean, like you don't know. Let's talk about villains proper again, 1954. Well, I'm going to argue that he's not a villain. Oh, you're right. True. Yeah. Good point. They're heroes. They are. They can be heroes and villains. But in the first 1954 Toho Godzilla movie, Godzilla was the bad guy. That's true. And Mothra is always the good guy. So a huge Mothra fan here. But Frank, Godzilla is friend to children. And Mothra's got twin little tiny fairies. So <laughs> nice. Yeah, totally. So Prospero Hall gave us Godzilla Tokyo Clash, which is one of the best kaiju games out there. The production is gorgeous from kind of a 60s Japanese art poster look on the cover, some printed shelfware on the box cards and everything to give it that age. So it looks like a kind of you're dragging out this really, you know, 70s, 60s. Japanese board game. And uh, you get four miniatures. That would be Ghidorah, Godzilla, Mothra, and... Oh, crap. I think... Rodan? No, no it's, it's uh, not Rodan. Something with an M. A weird choice. I would have picked Rodan or, you know... Um... Megalon. No, not Megalon. It is Megalon, according oh, it is Megalon? to Board Game Geek. Oh, yeah, okay. Megalon, then. Yeah, it's uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidra, and Megalon. Okay. They're actually washed, so they oh, bring nice. out a little detail in the minis. Then you've got a bunch of buildings, which are secretly marked on the bottom with tokens to represent values to randomize things a bit. Each monster gets its own deck, and they are different decks themed to the monster's capabilities. These monsters get special powers. And you're basically doing a big old kaiju battle royale. <laughs> things attack the monsters. Monsters mostly are attacking each other, but you get points for destroying buildings, vehicles, pretty much anything. The board is just packed with Tokyo at the start of the game and not at the end of the game. <laughs> Anything in the game you're allowed to basically hit. You can pick up and throw vehicles. Uh, so if you run onto a vehicle, you can pick it up and throw it at a building or another kaiju and do damage. You can actually slam into kaiju and knock them back into buildings, in which case you get points for destroying the buildings. It just has the feel in fairly simple rules of a big, giant kaiju battle royale. Frank. Does it give me the ability to do a flying jump kick through the air like Godzilla? Absolutely. Excellent. I'm in. You'll just knock them back, but yeah, yeah, totally. I think you may take out a building behind them, depending. That seems like you should. Some of the cards just have move and attack values. Some of them actually have other special effects on them that gets to as well. And they are all themed to their particular monster. When you take out a monster or do enough damage, monsters die in air quotes pretty frequently. You get to steal a card from their deck as a trophy. And you basically look at so many cards according to the value of your hit and then pick the highest and that becomes points. So is it player elimination if your monster dies or you're nah, out? At that point, you call the game and start oh, counting okay. points. It is definitely a choose your target to get points. 
It's just a game about wreaking havoc and getting points. This is just screaming for expansion. Like, they have to have Mechagodzilla in here. And... I know. And uh, Gamera. Oh, yes. Oh, Gamera. Rocket Turtle. <laughs> Gamera's hard. Different company. Oh, okay. yeah. I know. Rodan's from Toho, though, isn't Rodan's it? Rodan's from Toho. Yeah, I don't know why Rodan wasn't in there. Well, expansions. Oh, totally. Seems likely. I also like the fact that the miniatures, which are really nicely sculpted, by the way, yeah. other than Mothra, because he's flying, don't have bases. They just kind of stand on the map, which gives you good space and visibility underneath. Yeah. And the game looks gorgeous. I mean, the art is wonderful. Again, we brought that up during Horrified. Yeah. And again, this is another one you can find at Target. I just saw this at Target like last week. Oh, yeah. Totally worth it. We're sponsored by Target now. Just I've decided. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, I I think we need them to give us money before we do that. crap. Is that how that works? Usually, yeah. Maybe if we just shill hard enough, they'll they'll just like, like, well, gosh, thanks. Somebody at the Target marketing will just be like, are are we supporting this podcast now? Did we pay them last month? We should do that. (laughs) Let's hope. So if anybody from Target marketing is listening, hook us up. We're in. What board game universe would you like to play in, Joe? Well, you know, if I had any choice, it would be Kingdom Death Monster. <laughs> oh, jeez. But if I had to take a second choice, I think almost certainly I'd have to choose The Spice's Life and play Dune, which is honestly one of my favorite board games and also is a great series of novels and... Uh, it is a great novel. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> A great series of sci-fi miniseries. All the sci-fi miniseries are excellent for Dune. Joe. And I will die on that hill. It has so much potential for a movie. And the Jodorowsky version of that movie is just really trippy and everyone should watch it. Except it never came out. Uh, the documentary is pretty amazing. The documentary is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Jodorowsky's Dune for those who haven't so been following along. So good. So good. Don't take a brief tangent on Jodorowsky's Dune. The thing that is <laughs> fascinating about Jodorowsky's Dune is that without Jodorowsky's Dune, Aliens literally wouldn't have happened because he brought the guy who did the special effects for the first Aliens and... Giger. Giger. Giger, Giger together. Ever. Right? Like, literally, like, they were both on the Dune staff. And that's how they met is through Jodorowsky's Dune. So, like... Literally, Aliens would have never happened without it, which is crazy to me. And at the end of the documentary, they kind of show all the things that were, like, directly influenced by the massive animation Bible they put out that nobody bit on. And it's the list of movies that are directly influenced by this movie that never happened is fascinating. One of my favorite parts of the documentary. So, yeah, Dan O'Bannon was a big part of that because he's... The writer on Alien, um, mm-hmm. Return of the Living Dead, Farscape. Joe, to let you know, by the way, if I ever win the lottery, I am going to buy you a copy of that movie Bible. That'd be amazing. Wait, I, is there I, a copy I wish of you that could, movie Bible? I no, wish you could buy well, like, it. Oh, but yeah. They do exist, but like... Yeah, he has it in the documentary. You can see I know, the giant I binder. saw it. I won't. <laughs> they I are typically not for sale. Mm-hmm. If they made a reproduction, I would instantly buy it. I mean, right. it, it looks gorgeous. But anyway, back to Dune. <laughs> We're talking about board games on this TV show? I'm, co- I'm so Allegedly. confused now. I'm so confused. Wait, we're on a TV show? Joe. I think so. It's hard, it's hard to be sure. We're a podcast. Are you sure? Whiskey broke Joe so bad that he doesn't know where he is or what he's doing. I don't even I don't I Like, the Holy Mountain, it's fine. Don't, it's fine. I mean, Mike watched those movies. It was great. Mike still hasn't forgiven Wait, there's a yet. Holy Mountain board game? Oh, that'd be amazing. I like That'd be a great... I mean, let's make that board game right now. I'm going to reel you guys back in a little bit here. No, no, no. no Brian, this tie-in topic is now about Yodorowsky board games. <laughs> Avalon Hill, Dune, 1979. 
And the board game is great, right? Like, there are few games, especially at that time, there are a few games that reproduced a thing, right? Like, hey, being a member of this faction, being this person, that the original Dune game kind of evoked. Also, there's a new game out called Doom Imperium, which is apparently very good. Certainly, the board game board game geek's hotness is totally exploding around it. So, yeah, it looks like it's a combination deck builder and worker placement game that, again, looks like it's heavily themed and has the different faction abilities kind of focused differently. I'm certainly going to be picking up a copy in hopes that I will someday be able to play it with people. We've talked about Dune a fair amount, and I feel like yeah. we don't need to dive into it super much more. It's real good. Hopefully Brian will keep in some of the Jodorowsky stuff because it's amazing, but, hmm, you know, we'll maybe. see. Maybe, maybe, We'll see, maybe. we'll see. I live in hope. I live in hope. All right. How about a less dirty sci-fi universe? Sure, yeah, let's have a pristine one where everything's clean and all the, the ships have been recently painted. And everyone's bored. Everyone's bored, yes. The, the sole the, impetus for doing anything is because you're bored. That's the core concept for everything that happens in all those shows. What show is that? Uh, this show is Star Trek, Mike. Thanks for the lead-in. Um, specifically, I'm going to be talking about Star Trek Ascendancy from our friends over at Gale Force 9. And the reason I picked this one out is really because, most generally speaking, it's a 4X game, right? You're exploring the universe, you're discovering systems, you're mining resources, you're attacking people... In the game, you pick one of the factions, right? So you've got Vulcans, Andorians, Klingons, Romulans, the Federation, which is funny because Andorians and Vulcans are members of the Federation, but whatever. Oh, and the Ferengi. (laughs) Of all factions, the Ferengi are in there. And the idea is you're trying to achieve either conquering two of your opponent's homeworlds, which is possible but very difficult, or more likely you're trying to win through gaining ascendancy, which is basically mining enough culture resource and building out enough systems that you get to seven ascendancy and you win the game that way. But what makes this a good tie-in game is that each of the different factions have their own benefit, their own flaw or weakness, and they also have their own unique upgrade decks. And that's really where the kind of the flavor of the different empires or races or whatever you want to call them comes to the forefront. The Vulcans, for example, they have a completely different victory condition. They have a Vulcan agenda deck. <laughs> where it's, You draw two cards at the beginning of the game, and these are your two potential ways of winning. One is face up, so everybody in the game knows what you're trying to do, and one's face down, because Vulcans are sneaky. So (laughs) either one is valid, but people don't know what you're trying to do. But as their flaw, they can't lie. (laughs) So if you say, hey, if I allow you to enter my system, are you going to attack me? The Vulcan has to tell you (laughs) if they're going to or not. It's an interesting way of going about it. The Ferengi are all about commerce, of course. They have a whole deck built around, hey, I want to put a ship into every system, mostly so I can facilitate trade, so I can get resources. The Ferengi are incapable of generating the resource culture, but they can buy it with production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Ferengi, right? What is best in life? Earning latinum, as <laughs> is well right. known. <laughs> I'm sure that's a rule of acquisition somewhere. <laughs> but all of the factions play out like this. Like, it's great. You have a, the ability to engage in trade agreements with other species. Usually the way that works is once you have a direct path between your two civilizations, you can exchange these cards and say, hey, I'm going to enter a trade agreement between the Romulans and the Federation. I'll give you two production. You give me two production. We're both going to generate this free production every turn. But the Romulans, because they don't trust anybody, they have to inspect the agreement. So they miss out on the first round of their production because they're busy looking for loopholes and trying to see if someone's screwing them over, right? (laughs) So it's like with a lot of the Gale Force 9 games, you can tell they really understand the intellectual property. You can tell they're fans of it. They've really kind of built in all of these systems around clearly understanding what makes these different civilizations unique and what makes them different. They all play fairly differently. I'd say as they've built out more of the expansion 
civilizations, they've definitely got a lot more differentiation between them. And I just love it. Joe, you got a chance to play this at uh, AFK, didn't you? Yep, I did. I was the Ferengi. Yes, that's right. And you won too, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I could totally see Joe as a Ferengi. It's yeah. great. I'm just like, I want to put my ships over. You guys don't worry about it. It'll be fine. We're not a military power. We just want money. It's fine. Now, I seem to remember from the last time we talked about this, is this is the one where you basically can set up warp points between different places on the board? So it sort of deforms the board virtually? Yeah, yeah. So basically when you're exploring, right, you can go into warp. When you come out of warp into a space lane that hasn't been explored yet, you flip over a tile from the pile of systems, and it'll tell you what system you're getting to. And so systems are connected to each other through these, well, space lanes. They call them space lanes. And the cool thing is, like, as you're building these out, as you're exploring, each of the systems have a certain number of space lanes that they support. So I get into a new system, maybe it supports three space lanes. As I explore off of that, I can swing those space lanes around the system so that I can line them up to connect with other systems, or deliberately make it so they don't connect to other systems. So you kind of have this ability to kind of control how the map builds out. And so like a lot of the strategy of the game is like, hey, I'm going to get into a system. I'm going to explore every single possible space lane to prevent anyone else from being able to build a space lane onto this system, right? So mm-hmm. there's there's some strategy around it. But of course, certain factions like the Federation, because they're really good at warp technology, they can add a space lane even if it's full. So there's a lot of little clever mechanisms they kind of build into it that I really appreciate. I like the idea that one of the mechanisms is like when you send a group of ships into warp, you put them off to the side and you set a warp counter by them that every turn it increases. And then at some point in the future, you can drop that group of ships anywhere within that number of warp counter places on the board, right? So if you're like the Klingons, maybe you form a massive armada and you just send them into warp. Who knows where they're going to end up, but it's going to be amazing. Yeah, and they don't need to decide where they're going until they get there. (laughs) Yes, which is great. Oh, man. They have a concept where you can have uh, multiple ships move as a fleet, and the fleets have special abilities based off of what civilization you support. But when you see, like, the Klingons have all three fleets deployed that are all at warp, you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Where where are they going? (laughs) That's a real tense moment. I got to play this back in uh, Gen Con years ago, and it was a great full-player game, but we played with the Borg expansion where the Borg is an AI-controlled, basically, hazard that's just on the board. And, like, when they pop up, every time you fight them, they get stronger. (laughs) So if you attack them, they keep getting stronger if you haven't destroyed them. And I was playing the Klingons, and my entire game was sitting on Kronos, building up fleets, because there was a Borg space node right outside my home system. And we had the most glorious war ever. It was just the Klingons versus the Borg (laughs) the entire game, just wrecking Borg cubes and stealing Borg technology and building up my fleet. And then the the Romulans won the game. (laughs) (laughs) Sneaky damn Romulans. I will say, of all of the games we've talked about so far, I think this one does in my opinion, the best of conveying its IP into a board game. I think Dune is a runner for that title. I think they they both do it at equal level, ultimately. Yeah, like, just when playing Star Trek Ascendancy, like, it feels like you're in the Star Trek universe, especially because you could win without ever throwing a punch. (laughs) It's true. I've definitely seen that happen. Or, you know, you could buy your way to victory like the Ferengi. Right, exactly. (laughs) I think both this game and the Dune game both do that exceptionally well, Mm -hmm. right? They are best in class for that specific thing. I will say there is nothing greater in Dune than playing as the uh, Benny Gesserit and being like, I'm going to win on turn 10. And then that happens. You're just like, (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen that happen, but... <laughs> the events in Dune so match every single card matches that first novel. I mean, it's really yeah, tied yeah. to the first novel, where Star Trek has a lot of theme for the races and everything, but the events aren't really tied to any specific story or narrative. That's, that's well, I think it's true. hard, because it's such a big universe. Yeah, now. totally. Mm-hmm. They both do an excellent job. They do an excellent job in different ways. They both do an excellent job making you feel like you are that thing, right? Whether it's, hey, you are a member of the Atreides, like you're leader of the Atreides, or you're a member of Starfleet and so bored. So, so bored. <laughs> yeah, they both have those great moments where you're looking at a card or an interaction. And you're like, oh, I see what they're doing there. Yeah, that's cute. Like, uh, I'm going to go use the uh, House Atomics on the shield. <laughs> it's like, I get yes. it. I understand. <laughs> that's how this works now. Yep. For those of you who haven't heard, the reason we've been saying being bored so much <laughs> is I have a central theory around all of the Star Trek universe that the driving force for functionally humanity exploring the universe is boredom because that's what you get when you're in a post-scarcity economy, right? You just become bored and you're like, well, what are we going to do now? Right? The reason you explore for exploration's sake is because you can, because you're kind of bored and like Earth is kind of boring. There's nothing going on there. Which is why I dislike some of the more recent Star Trek stuff so much, because they kind of miss that core point. And I think that core point is really the thing that drives home, like, Roddenberry's ultimate vision for, like, a post-scarcity economy is kind of boredom, and that makes a lot of sense. So, Joe, which manifesto are you publishing first? The one on the (laughs) post-scarcity economy and the boredom of Star Trek? Or the one on Yodorowsky's Dune? Oh, Yodorowsky's Dune, because like it is, oh, because yeah. that movie was never made, it is way more fascinating. Pink Floyd doing the soundtrack. Oh, oh so I know, good. right? Great. Oh, my God. <laughs> also, it had, uh, oh, God, who is the artist that he was going to get to play one of the characters, but demanded? Oh, Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali. Yeah. <laughs> demanded to be the highest paid actor in Hollywood if he were going to do the movie. And Yodorowsky's like, okay. Let's do it. <laughs> he wanted to be the highest paid actor per dollars. And then finally what they said is they're like, we can't give him that much money. But they got him to agree to be the highest paid actor per minute. <laughs> ah. It was insane. <laughs> I'll mention just briefly, there are obviously there's tons of Star Trek games. The only one I've played a lot of is the deck building game, which in my opinion is fairly weak. <laughs> its oddest feature is that you get new starships by using diplomacy, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to me. <laughs> But I guess they wanted to find something for diplomacy to do. Uh, I played the heck out of the Paragraph game. (laughs) My favorite thing about the Paragraph game is that they would put in, in some of the adventures, plugs for their other games (laughs) that were thematically tied to the planet you were on. Yeah, so like visiting Alpha Complex from Paranoia. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Or if you go to one that is sort of Middle Eastern flavored, at the end of the Visit of the Planet, Billy, have you enjoyed this game? Consider Tales of the Arabian Nights, available at your local game retail. Oh, yeah. Well, let's get back to board games, because the next one, I'm going to call this a bit of a stretch for a tie-in, but Betrayal at Mystery Mansion ties in the Scooby-Doo universe to the Betrayal universe. Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, by the way, is made in 2020 by uh, Banana Chan, Noah Cohen, Rob Davio, Brian Neff, by Avalon Hill. And all I gotta say is, like, of course this is a thing that exists. How how did it not exist before 2020? Betrayal at House on Haunted Hill has Scooby-Doo all over it. Unfortunately, though, I've not actually played Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, so I don't know that it necessarily does anything different than the base Well, it's no. got a couple <laughs> things that are different. I mean, it's a smaller board, there are fewer locations, 
but it's got different locations like the old swamp. There is not an abandoned fairground, unfortunately, which I feel like there should be. Yeah, that seems like a miss. Yeah, you know, maybe that'll be coming in the future. The other thing, because I was worried when I saw this game, so I was like, well, what's going to happen if you're like three quarters of the way through the game uh, and you get to the haunt or the big reveal and suddenly Shaggy turns evil? (laughs) But actually what they do is one of the Mystery Machine crew basically vanishes and the villain shows up. They are kidnapped, sure. Sure. They're tied up in the basement or whatever while old man Jenkins in the rubber mask is running around terrorizing the crew. Other than that, it's mostly Betrayal at House on the Hill, which means a good game marred by suboptimal components. And a huge pile of random. And a huge pile of random. But yeah, thematically, it nail hits right on the head. Wow, I'm, I'm looking at the miniatures on this, and like the paint jobs on these are so much better than the paint jobs in the regular version of this game. I will say that this is not Avalon Hill's first attempt at theming the Betrayal game mechanics, and... I did play the Betrayal in Baldur's Gate, which is a D&D tie-in. It, I don't know. It was like, fine. It was it fine. Powers. It, was, it was wholly fine. But I think that has more to do with just my standing on games has, I think, evolved beyond Betrayal a little bit. Because at this point in my life, I don't feel the need to play any Betrayal that isn't my own personalized copy of Betrayal Legacy. Because, like, I don't know, like you said, it's a good game. It is perfectly cromulent, but... People who aren't heavy gamers can easily get into it. And the Scooby-Doo one is like an IP that a lot of people are familiar with. So I think it's fun from that perspective. It's not something I feel like I need to own, because like you say, Betrayal Legacy is more or less fired all the others for me. Now, I will say, I think this could also be a good use of parents trying to introduce their kids to Betrayal-like game, because it... It definitely has that IP. I was actually talking with some of my friends the other day about how even in 2020, when kids think of things like Halloween costumes, the Scooby-Doo gang still comes up. Like, it is still relevant to the modern child lexicon, which is fascinating for a thing that came out in 1969. This concludes part one of our Good Tie-In Games episode. Please join us again next time when we talk about some more recent intellectual properties and the good games they spawned, and probably also some more about Yodorowsky's Dune, because Joe. See you then. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. We're an hour in, and we're like a third of the way through the list of games.